can we not thank Alison? Oh, no, sorry, let's thank Alison. Give him a round of applause. We love you. Yes. Well, welcome to The Vine. Uh, if you are relatively new here, whether in the room or online right now, we are so glad you're here. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and welcome. Uh, we're glad you're present with us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I woke up not feeling particularly Christmassy. You know, it's still November, right? So uh, I came into this room, and I was like, ah! And uh, now I feel a lot more Christmassy, and perhaps uh, you do too. But I hope uh, after our time together today, after what I want to share on my heart with you, uh, that it will help you actually to really experience Christmas as I think it was originally intended to be. And I, wa- I want to start my time together with you today actually telling you a story about my family. Uh, it's a story about my family that I've not shared here at The Vine before, um, but it's one that I think uh, is going to blow your mind. Uh, my great, 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 great grandfather uh, was called Francis Crevel. He was born in 1770 in Bosom, England. Uh, to, uh, he was the only son, actually, to Elizabeth and John Crevel. And, and Francis ended up uh, marrying his childhood sweetheart. Her name was Martha Quennell. And they got married in the late 70s. And after they got married in the early 1800s, they started to have a family. They actually ended up having four children, one who was called Oliver. And Oliver, I can trace my personal lineage, my personal generational history right the way back uh, to Francis's son, Oliver. Now, Francis was not a Christian. In fact, his whole family were not believers in his day, something that was a little bit strange in those days as they lived in the UK at a time when there was great revival within the churches. But uh, Francis and his family, Martha and the kids, were not Christians. But on the 5th of November, 1809, Francis had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a room filled with people. And this room was filled with people who were intently listening to one person. And that person was what he could tell in the dream, a young English man. And he was standing on a a small platform just raised off the floor, and he was holding up a Bible in the air. Now, now this is quite a strange dream for Francis to have, given the fact that they weren't, like I say, church-going family but, but he could see this, this dream very clearly. And as the dream continued to unfold, he could tell that everybody in the room that was listening to the young Englishman who was holding up the Bible were foreigners. In particular, he could tell that they were Chinese people. After he had this dream, he woke up and he told the dream to his wife, Martha. And they wondered what the dream meant because, again, none of them really knew any preachers. They certainly didn't know any young Englishmen. And they certainly, in those days, didn't know any Chinese. Now, that dream would have been lost to all history unless, of course, Francis himself wrote it down. And what is amazing in history is that Francis was an avid diary writer, and his diary has been passed down from generation to generation. This is Francis's diary. This came to me when uh, my father passed away three years ago, and he gave it to me as is rightfully to be done, passing down through the family history. I want to read to you uh, Francis's entry on November 5th. 1809, some 213 years ago. He said this, The dream seems strange to me, for I sense, despite my lack of faith, 
a divine suggestion within it. The young Englishman seemed to reflect me, or at least a future version of me. And the people listening intently also seemed to be in the future, many Chinese people. As I awoke and spoke of this to Martha, she said a strange thing. She said, perhaps you dreamt of a future time of one of your own blood who will do just as you saw them do. It seems to me a great mystery, but I am quite joyful about it. I mean, could you imagine that God 213 years ago would appear to somebody in my generation, my family, bring the word of God to them in a dream, see a young preacher standing holding the Bible in front of a whole bunch of Chinese people in the room. I mean, is that not the most amazing thing? I mean, can you believe it? It's the most amazing thing. Or at least it would be if it were true. I lied to you. I just made up that whole story. Not one word is true, except for I did have a relative who is the name Francis Kerbel. He was, in fact, married uh, to Martha Quennell. They did have a son called Oliver, who is in my family line. And this is actually from 1802, but it is a Bible, not his diary, and it is still passed down through my generations. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, the guy ripped me off. That was a great story. My emotions were there, right? And I ripped you off. I told you a lie, and pastors are not supposed to lie. Why did I lie to you? Well, it's because I wanted to create in you a feeling. That feeling you just had. The feeling that made you clap your hands. The feeling of awe, of wonder, of astonishment. The feeling that God could maybe do something like that through generations and generations, that God might give a dream to someone and generations later, that dream might come to pass. The astonishment that we actually have a God who could do something like that. That feeling that you just felt, welcome to the very first Christmas. Because that was the feeling that they had at the first time when Jesus was born. And the reason why I wanted to start with that is because the reality is that for many of us, myself included, we don't really have that feeling about Christmas anymore. Oh, and by the way, you know that other feeling you felt when you found out I lied to you? You know that one where you rolled your eyes and you felt a little frustrated and there was a bit of latent anger and you were very disappointed that I lied to you? You know that feeling? That's the feeling of the first Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross. That's how his disciples felt. In fact, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus shortly afterwards were having a conversation together and they said, we thought he was gonna be the Messiah, but I guess he's just a prophet because he's just died on the cross. Disappointment, rage, upset, anger. It's fascinating, isn't it? The feelings that surround Jesus' ministry. 
And, and I wanted to begin my talk with you today, the first talk of our series of Advent. If you're new to church, Advent is the four Sundays that run up to Christmas. Advent in the Latin mean coming. And it's the time where we prepare our hearts as the church for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. I, I wanted to start our celebration of Advent by creating in you not the feeling that you normally have at Christmas, but the feeling of the actual Christmas. The feeling that the Jewish people had when they were longing for the Messiah to come. And the reality that when he did come, they were like a short intake of breath. And we're like, oh my gosh, everything the prophets had ever spoken about this son, he's actually happened. The prophets weren't lying. It actually came true. In my fictitious story of Francis writing it down in his journal for generations to read, in our scriptures we hold, don't we, so many of these prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. Utterances that explain to us the hope that God's people had for a Christmas to come. And I want you to think about it this way because it's quite interesting for us today in 2022 when we celebrate Christmas. Because for us, the celebration of Christmas is something that happened in the past. It's something that happened over 2,000 years ago that we now celebrate in the present. But when you read the Bible, you've got to understand that the majority of people in Scripture, for them, Christmas was not something in the past. Christmas was something in the future. That they hadn't had yet the Messiah come into the world. And there was this longing. There was this hope. There was this desire that God in some point in the future would step into human history and change everything. And because they had this longing for desire, when it actually took place, they were like, it is real. He is here. And the world is never, ever going to be the same. And if you're going to celebrate Christmas, in 2022. That's the feeling I want you to have. If you want to celebrate Christmas, really. And look, we love trees and presents and mold wine and all of that good stuff. And I hope you have amazing Christmas that way. But as your pastor, I want you to feel Christmas. I want you to feel it as the original people were feeling it. And they were longing for this God to come because the prophets of the Old Testament had dreams like my story of Francis. They had visions and hopes and they wrote them down. And these visions and these dreams drove God's people forward for over 500 years as they waited for their dream to come into reality. And in the Old Testament, you can read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Ezra and some of the other Old Testament prophets as they began to lean forward into the idea that a day will happen when a child will be born and they begin to speak over Israel some things about the coming of this child. And so if you look through the Old Testament prophets, you'll hear these words, things like, oh, he's a coming son of man. He's going to be a, a son of man who's going to come. And, and, and when he comes, we will know him like we've known no one before, that, that he will come be born of a virgin. Like, like this virgin will, will give birth to him. And, and when that happens, everybody will know that this child is the savior of the world. And because of this, they, they began to understand that if the Savior comes, then what that means is that evil will be overcome with good. And, and it will be like when this child arrives that a, a light has shone in the darkness, like a, a light has come around. And this child, he will have all authority sit on his shoulders. 
And the prophets began to speak of, of a name that this, this child would hold. Oh, he'll be like a, a wonderful counsellor, like a mighty God, an everlasting Father. And ultimately, we will come to know him as the Prince of Peace. They understood the prophets as they began to speak of the coming day that this, this uh, uh, Saviour would arrive. They, they, they understood that he would come through the reign of David's throne, that it would come through David's lineage as the ultimate king of Israel. And, and this, this guy, this, this child to be born, he will actually establish justice and righteousness on earth for all eternity. It, it'll be like those who are captives will be set free. It'll be like those who are in darkness will come out like prisoners coming out of the darkness. And they began to say that when this child is born, it'll be like the year of the Lord's favor forever. So all of this stuff on the screen behind me right now is spoken 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And all of this stuff helped to form in Israel their expectations of that very first Christmas. Sometime in the future, this child will be born. And not only will he be born as a child, but when he grows up and through his life and all that he does, he'll deal with our sin. He'll actually forgive us and restore us. We'll be in right relationship with God again. And the world will be just as it was designed to be. So Christmas, for those in the Old Testament, was about one central theme, the promise of better days. Because oh. when Jesus comes, when this Son of Man comes, the world will not be like it is right now with all of its tensions and sin and destruction and pain and hurt, with the world to be changed and transformed in the beautiful renewal of a God who comes down to meet with his people and sets them free. Oh, and so the people longed for the promise of better days. Christmas for them was not just a spiritual thing, but it had political, social, and cultural connection to it. Christmas for them. The reason why they longed for it so much was because they believed that if God ended to the world like this child, then the world would never be the same again. And I think we've lost so much of the original power of Christmas. There's one thing I want for all of you over the next four weeks of Advent. It's to recapture something of the promise of better days. If you're anything like me, that's a good thing because I would like some better days. I don't know about you. The world's been a pretty tough place to live in recently. Hong Kong's been a pretty challenging place to live in recently. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life personally, things happening in your family. Maybe there's just stuff going on around you in your sphere of influence, maybe in your workplace or, or the wider sense of your family, and you would echo that sense of better days. Oh, I can't wait for 2023. Like it's going to be better than now, Right? And this longing that the Old Testament prophets placed in Israel for this longing for coming for better days had to be held in their spirits for 500 years because at the time that Isaiah and some of the other prophets finished prophesying, nothing happened. Silence for over 400 and something years. I don't know what it's like for you to wait on a promise. I can wait maybe about three days. Imagine having to wait over 400 years. It's not a surprise then that when the first Christmas finally arrived, everybody in Israel was like, ah, 
that exact feeling I gave you right at the start, even though I lied to you. Not the lying feeling, but the one before it, okay? <laughs> that was the feeling they all had. And, and when Matthew and Luke write their accounts of Jesus' birth, they want to try and help us to feel that feeling. They want to communicate us why Jesus is so important. So Matthew in particular, throughout his gospel narrative of the birth of Jesus, he includes four examples of the Old Testament prophetic words about Jesus. Because in those four examples, he's trying to teach the people that will read his gospel what that feeling really is about, what Christmas really is about, that it's not some arbitrary day. It's not just some day where we celebrate something that's happened 2,000 years ago, but it's actually a day that fulfills the Old Testament longing and hope. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to take one of Matthew's four Old Testament sayings, one each week, and we're going to help you to feel really Christmassy. And by that, I mean the real Christmas, not the modern one. Can I have me an amen? Let me not lie to you anymore. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> and let me read to you the gospel of the birth of Jesus as Matthew tells it. This is Matthew 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be ch with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, note this. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said long ago through the prophets. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew does this amazing thing. He's telling the story about the birth of Jesus. He tells about the virgin sort of side of that. He tells about Joseph trying to be an honorable person and quietly divorcing his wife, not to bring shame on her family. And then God shows up in a dream. This one really took place. I'm not lying to you. This dream happened. And in that dream, the angel actually says to him, no, don't be afraid. Take her to be your, your wife. Go home together. Don't lie with her until you're actually married. But you're going to see this child come through. And he says this. And this is all to fulfill one of those prophetic words that was spoken 500 years ago. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. And Isaiah 7, verse 14, starts all of the prophetic utterances about the coming of Jesus. It is the very first of what would become many prophetic utterances that would create this messianic hope of a child coming in the future. And so as we start Advent, may we start in Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to show you what the true Christmas is really all about. Let's start uh, just a little bit earlier so we can get some context here because context is important. Isaiah 7 verse 1 says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin Aram of Aram and Pekah, son of Remiah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told this, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. 
So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, all the, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, there's a lot of names and places there. Let me just pull it all together very simply and tell you what's going on here. This is a very important time in Israel's history in the Old Testament. At this point, Israel has split into two nations. It's called the divided kingdom period. The 10 of the tribes of Israel have gone north to set up a new nation, which annoyingly, when you read the Bible, they call themselves Israel, which confuses you with the previous Israel. But anyway, they're also known as Ephraim, how they're referred to in this passage. That's the 10 tribes that went north. Two tribes remained south, Judah and Benjamin. And they were headed now by a king, King Ahaz. And he represented the southern kingdoms. Now, there's a north king and there's a south king. And this gets very Game of Thrones, okay? Because the king of the north is attacked by the Assyrians even further north. And because there's a war happening there, the king of the north writes to King Ahaz in the south and says, would you come to our aid? Will you come and fight the battle with us and for us? And Ahaz refuses to send his people into war for the 10 tribes that are north. Now, because of that, the king of the north is upset, as you can imagine he would be. And so he decides, okay, well, if you're not going to join us, we're going to force you to join us. We're now going to attack downwards. We're going to attack into Jerusalem. We're going to force your men to come and fight our battles. Now, word of this, that the north are going to come and attack the south, comes to King Ahaz of the south, and he is filled with fear. In fact, he's described here in the Bible that he is trembling like leaves of a tree in the wind might tremble. Not a very nice picture to have in all of history. Now, we're told something else about Ahaz that's really important. We're told that he's a part of the house of David. And why is that important? Because the house of David represented the Davidic kingship through the blood. Ahaz had been blood-related to David. And Scripture will begin to tell us that the coming Messiah would come through the bloodline of David. In fact, right at the birth of Jesus, Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy, which goes from Jesus all the way back to King David through King Ahaz. So Ahaz is part of the bloodline of the Savior. And the house of David was supposed to be faithful. The house of David was supposed to be confident and strong and show their faithful commitment to God, but Ahaz is afraid. I wonder if you've ever had to be faithful, but you've had to wrestle with fear in the midst of that faithfulness. Well, if so, then you're just like Ahaz. Verse three, notice what happens next. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shergesub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him this, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's the two nations that want to attack them. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramiah, Aram, Ephraim and Ramiah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tebal king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. Okay, God shows up to Ahab, who's trembling, scared, and says, just chill out, buddy. I'm with you. I'm here. You don't need to be afraid. I'm going to fight some battles with you. It's going to be okay. All right. Yes, they're plotting against you, but you're not alone. And he says this to them. He says, this, i.e. the attack on you, will not take place. It will not happen. 
For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered by a people. That actually happened, by the way. Assyria came down, actually defeated the 10 tribes in the north. That happened in 756 years before Jesus. And he says this, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Ramiah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Oh, we can preach on that one for a while. God says to Ahab, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. God is constantly calling his people to faithfulness. Constantly calling them not to be perfect, not to have it all worked out, but to be faithful in believing that God can do the impossible. Faithful in believing that God could step in in the worst of circumstances. And so he says to Ahaz, if you just stand faithful, then you will be able to stand. The question is, did he stand faithful? Well, let's carry on. Verse 10. Is this okay, everybody? I know it's a lot of scripture, but track with me because this is about your Christmas. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God says to Ahaz, ask me to act on your behalf. Ask me to fight battles for you. Ask of me. It's like God wants to be in intimate relationship with humanity. He wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to have that kind of connection with them. And so he's saying, would you be in communion with me? Would you just ask me? Would you actually Ask me for a sign. And if you just simply ask me for a sign, I will respond to you. I will act on your behalf. I will come and fight your battles. Just ask. Notice what Ahaz says. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. For I will not put my Lord, my God, to the test. Ahaz is so funny. He's not faithful. He doesn't respond in a faithful way to God. But he tries to hide his lack of faithfulness behind religious piety. He quotes the Ten Commandments back to God. He's like, these are your rules, buddy. You said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, I'm not going to put you to the test. And it's almost like God is like, oh my goodness. It's a little bit like when I saw that Advent calendar. I was like, oh my goodness. It's, it's Ellison again. <laughs> Here's God going, oh my goodness, Ahaz. You know, like, dude, you just had to ask me for a sign. It's Thursday, the 1st of December. That's all you had to remember. Notice how the Lord responds. <laughs> Verse 13, then Isaiah says this. The Lord speaking through Isaiah. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will act, will give you a sign. Here's the sign. The virgin will be with a child and you will give birth to a son and she will call him Emmanuel. Here's the very first mention of the Messiah, the very first mention of the coming messianic hope, the very first time God steps into his people and says, if you are not going to be faithful, I am still going to be faithful on your part. I'm going to step into your brokenness and I'm going to send you a sign. And you want to know what that sign is? The sign is going to be the most amazing thing you could ever expect. I'm going to take a virgin, someone who has never laid with a man. She's going to be pregnant. She's going to bring forth a child and that child is going to be called Emmanuel. The, the word for virgin here is the Hebrew word Alma. It's a very old, rare word. It's only used six times in the Old Testament. It doesn't actually specifically mean virgin. It means a woman or a, a girl who is too young to uh, carry a child. And so this girl is going to carry a child. And what basically Isaiah is saying is God is going to act in a miraculous, 
impossible way. Just like we had in that prophetic word from Hudson earlier. That God can do the impossible. This is exactly what Isaiah is saying. God is going to come in the future and do something where all we can respond to is to say, that's crazy. In other words, that they will have the same feeling that you had at the beginning of this sermon. When you were like, wow, that's amazing. Then he says this. This child is going to be known by this. His name will be Emmanuel. Now that doesn't sound particularly amazing to us. Or perhaps it does sound familiar to you because we sung it in a song earlier and we often use that name around Christmas time. But I wonder whether you've actually ever stopped to wonder why Isaiah mentions it here some 500 years before Christmas. His name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means literally God with us. Here's the question you should ask as a good biblical scholar. Why is God being with Israel important in Isaiah chapter 7? And why is that also important when we think about the first Christmas? Well, we have to wind all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story to answer that question. Are you ready for a bit of biblical history? I know it's 11 o'clock, you're getting hungry. You want to go to lunch and visit the market, but just stay with me for a few more minutes, okay? Because this will blow your mind even more than my story at the beginning when I lied to you. In Genesis 1 and 2, right at the beginning of the biblical story, we see a picture of what God with us looks like. See, Adam and Eve were created to be in intimacy with God. They were created to be in his presence. And and God is actually spoken of in Genesis 1 and 2 as walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. He communed with them in the fullness of his presence. There was this beautiful intimacy between humanity and God. So much so that at the end of Genesis 2, it actually says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It wasn't just talking about their physicality. It was talking about their emotion. And their mental state. It it was talking about how they thought of each other, how they thought of God. There was nothing between them. There was nothing to separate them. There was this complete openness, a brokenness, a vulnerability between themselves and the other. It was like nakedness without any shame at all. And the Bible describes this as shalom. The way the world is supposed to be, the way the world was created by God to be him in relationship with Adam and Eve, walking in that garden, creating intimacy where they were naked and unashamed. It's like God is saying, this is very good. And then in Genesis 3, we know what happens next. Through Adam and Eve's choices, they bring sin into the equation. They disobey the obedience of God and what God had asked them to do. And they bring sin and brokenness. And immediately everything is ruptured. All of that intimacy of Genesis 1 and 2 is completely ruptured. And suddenly Adam and Eve start fighting against each other. The first married couple to have a bickering argument together. They start blaming each other. Then they start blaming God. Then they start blaming creation. And all of the intimacy of the relationships in Genesis 1 and 2 are totally ruptured in Genesis 3. So much so that at the end of Genesis 3, a statement takes place from God. He casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. And in doing that, it was his way of saying, because of the choice that has been made, the brokenness that is here, there is no longer the ability, because I'm holy, for us to be present with each other. And so he sends them out of the garden. And basically, God is no longer with us at that point. Are you with me still? And really, the whole rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 4 all the way to the end of Malachi, is a story of a people, Israel, longing to be back in relationship with God. 
wanting to be back in relationship with Him, wanting to know the intimacy that was there in the garden, wanting to feel that naked and unashamed, wanting to know what it would be to be in a place of shalom where everything is good again. And what you see in the Old Testament narrative is God's people desiring intimacy and God Himself desiring to be close to them. But because of the sin and the reality of brokenness, there's this tension in the Old Testament between a people that long for intimacy, a God that longs to be with His people, and yet now a necessary separation. So for example, God is with His people, but now He's a burning bush. And Moses has to stand at a distance. God comes as a cloud of fire on the top of Mount Sinai, but only Moses is allowed to come up and be in His presence. God comes in a a pillar of fire into the tabernacle, but Israel are not allowed to go into the tabernacle. They're only allowed to stand outside of their tents and experience His glory from a distance. Then God's presence comes into the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and God is with His people like never before, but only one person is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and only on one day a year, and only after they spent weeks cleansing and purifying themselves, otherwise they would be consumed in the holy presence of God. So yes, God is with His people, but He's not really with His people in the fullness that Genesis 1 and 2 suggested. Are you tracking with this? Why is all this important? Because by the time you get to Isaiah 7, Israel has never been in a worse situation. War, they split up as a nation. There's now two different nations. They're dealing and struggling with idolatry and sin like never before. And they're wondering what's next for them. And God breaks into the worst moment of their lives and their history. And he says, guess what? Here's a sign. I am sending a child to you and he will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, it's happening. It's going to happen. I'm going to restore my intimacy with you. I'm going to restore that presence in your life. You're going to know what it is to have that awe and that astonishment. There is a time coming in the future where you will know the fullness of the presence of God. And all of God's people began to lean into the messianic hope, this future long for intimacy with God. Oh, if this could only happen, if God could come. And the reason why they wanted that intimacy again was not just so they could feel nice and fluffy and like they're floating on clouds. They wanted the intimacy because they desired shalom. They wanted peace on earth. They wanted victory from their brokenness. They wanted victory from all of the danger and the anger and the hurt. They wanted to be set free from the things that were chaining them. They longed to know the goodness of what it was like in Genesis 1 and 2 to finally experience the goodness and the liberation and the freedom of God. So Emmanuel is not just a statement about God's proximity. It's also a statement of his victory. When they heard Emmanuel, God with us, it wasn't just like, oh great, God's going to come and be with me. It was, oh great, there's going to be victory finally. I'm going to know freedom. I'm going to know joy. I'm going to be set right again. Are you still with me? Now all of that sits behind the moment in Matthew. The moment where God comes and does something crazy with a virgin with a woman who should not have been able to have a child, just like Isaiah had prophesied, to a a man who didn't really know what was next or what to do, to a moment in Israel's history where they are under the greatest oppression and slavery that they had ever been under in the Greco-Roman Empire, and God shows up, and Isaiah knows it. 
Isaiah has prophesied this some 600 years before. And Matthew takes that prophecy. And I want you to see what Matthew does. This is not arbitrary. He sees Jesus. He understands the birth of Jesus. And he's the first one in all history to go, hang on a second. This is exactly what Isaiah had mentioned 600 years ago. And he takes the prophecy of Isaiah 7 and he plants it right in his narrative of the birth of Jesus. And he's saying, don't you realize this is Emmanuel, God with us. He's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. He's talking about the reality that in Jesus, we have fully God and fully human. You see, Emmanuel is not about God being near us. Emmanuel is about God being one with us. The incarnation is the representation of the greatest amount of intimacy God could ever have with humanity. There is no more intimate reality that you can have than Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, now merged completely as one. That's the power of the incarnation. That's what we see at Christmas. That's the birth of Jesus. And this incarnation sets everything else on its axis. Because the victory is now here. Jesus would go on in his life, death and resurrection, to pay the price for sin, to stand in the gap as the only perfect sacrifice, the one to give up his life so that others could know freedom. He would, in his resurrection, show us that death is defeated, that we are now alive in the greatest amount of living that we could ever feel. And yes, we still wrestle with sin. We still sit in the reality of darkness around us as we wait for his triumphant return. But Christmas is God drawing a line in the sand and saying, I am now with you. You. you see, what was a messianic hope for everybody in the Old Testament? Oh, a time is coming when he comes, is our present reality. And this is why if we just casually show up for Christmas Day and we're like, yay, Christmas Day, I guess I get presents. I think God goes, oh, come on. And I think you're more Ahaz than Matthew. And I want you to feel Christmas again. I want you to own it again. And here's what Christmas means to you. You are so privileged to live on this side of the birth of Jesus. Because for many people for centuries, he was just a hope, a promise for a better day. You're living in the better days. So when you come to Christmas, you come accepting his presence in all of you right now, in every single part of you, in all of your brokenness and your hurt, and your messiness, See, Jesus just doesn't come to you when you're feeling good about it. He doesn't show up in your life when you've got everything worked out nice and neat. The beauty of Christmas is that he's a present for everybody. He's here for all humanity. No matter how dirty or distant you might feel right now, the fullness of his presence is here. The promise of better days are your days. So Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel is not for the religious. Emmanuel is not for the church. Emmanuel is not for songs that we sing. You want to know what Emmanuel is for? Emmanuel is for the drug addict who's struggling to keep his life together whilst he searches for his next fix. Emmanuel is for the single mother who's selling her body in one chai to provide for her family. Emmanuel is for the investment banker who's struggling with suicidal thoughts because of a position he took on the markets. Emmanuel's for the refugee family who's embedded in difficult neighborhoods in Hong Kong with racial overtones. Emmanuel's for your senior pastor who knows his brokenness, even amongst his best ability to lead God's people. 
And Emmanuel mostly is for you, for your story, for your narrative, your brokenness, your great highs, your great lows, for the great things that are happening in your life, for the messy things that are happening in your life. His presence is here. See, Emmanuel does not mean he is close when you deserve it. It does not mean he is sometimes close. It means that he is here, right here, right now. That victory is yours. That's Christmas. That's the feeling I want you to have. Or astonishment, wonder that you were chosen to live this side of Christmas so that you might be able to now walk with Emmanuel, God with you. I wonder whether I could pray for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for every person here in this room. I thank you, Lord, for every family represented, every community represented. Father, I thank you that each person here is on the side of better days. And Lord, it's easy for us to experience all that we have in Hong Kong in the last three years and ourselves long for better days, and perhaps rightly so. But Lord, we don't have the same longing that those some 400, 500, 600 years before the first Christmas held in their hearts because we're now walking in the time of your life, death and resurrection. We're now walking in a time where your Holy Spirit is made available to us. We're now walking the time where it's not just one person, one time a year that can go into the Holy of Holies, but it is every person all the time welcomed into your presence. And so Lord, I wanna pray for that for each person here. I wanna ask, Father, that you would move by your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, I pray that we would start our Advent season with this declaration of your presence, of Emmanuel, God with us, not drawing us back to the garden, but taking us forward to Revelation 21, 22, to a new Jerusalem, a time where you will be with us. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more hurt, where there will be healing for all the nations, where every tribe and tongue will confess that you and you alone are Lord. Lord, you are taking us that direction. Lord, may our celebration of Christmas still retain the awe and wonder of that first Christmas. And as we long for better days, may we not forget that we have our victory here in you. And Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, would you stand with me and we're gonna respond together as we 